0: well good afternoon I'm glad you're here I appreciate you being a part of this uh, the little um, hiccup yesterday about uh, calling calling the the fact that we were going to meet and then changing at the last minute that was that was all me so um, so don't 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 blame pastor Jerry or, or any of the others I uh, I thought it was going to get better and a couple hours passed and I realized that it wasn't improving any. And so, so I had to make that. I hope there wasn't a huge inconvenience uh, related to that. I also couldn't bring myself to, to take this four sessions and try and cut it down to three. So we just, we just pushed it on into Thursday. So I hope that works out as well for you. I appreciate you being here. We are in the Sermon on the Mount, preaching the disciple life. I told you that this is actually a sermon, and, and you can look at it that way. Sunday night, we looked at the introduction, which was the Beatitudes, a, a sort of captivating starting point where in, a, in a, a generation with low prospects for happiness, Jesus said, let me tell you how to be happy, then proceeded to outline the paradoxes of this Christian life, this, this life of faith that he was presenting, and it would have left them agog, their, their, their chins uh, fallen open as they listened to somebody teach in a way that they'd never heard before. And then he gives them the thesis, which is that uh, you are meant to make a difference in the whole world. That's what God's plan is for authentic disciples. So when you consider the audience, people who didn't have much prospect for happiness, and had never dreamed that they had much hope of, of significant influence in the world. And here is Jesus saying, uh, happiness and influence are precisely what God has in store for you. It was a remarkable start to the sermon. We now move to what I would call the first point. And if I had to give you, uh, I, I've broken this down on, on, on our outline for us to study, but, but if I was trying to outline the whole uh, sermon, I would say the first point could be what does a disciple look like? Because Jesus is going to take us through a series of, uh, of activities, of behaviors, of um, choices and he's gonna make the case that authentic disciples, true followers, they, they actually look and act in a distinctive manner from everybody else. Now what he's gonna do is he's going to first take, See, speaking to a, a crowd of people who had grown up with the Old Testament law. They understood the, the concept of rules and regulations and, and all of those kinds of things, But because of the poor teaching that they had received, they had really been raised that the way you satisfy God is that you maintain a a perfect track record of external behavior. There are certain things that the law tells you not to do, and so you don't do those things. In fact, they had expanded on the law to try and develop uh, scenarios so that in any given situation, you could just pull out that situation and apply it to where you were so that you would know precisely how to behave in every instance, what not to do primarily. Jesus is going to raise the bar. When he's talking about an authentic disciple, he's going to take the law, which frankly, uh, for Jesus, was more like a, a first-grade primer um, a reading book to teach reading if, to a first grader. You know, it's interesting. Um, I think about this sometimes. When you, when you think about the Old Testament law and, and the, the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, the, pri- the same primer that you use in first grade to learn how to read, those are the same principles of reading that you use when you're writing a PhD dissertation, There's advancement, but the same basic structure is in place. Well, that's what we have in the Old Testament, except that the Old Testament is that primer. It was was presented by God to his people to say, okay, let me give you the basic steps so that you can move in the right direction. Jesus comes and says, okay, the law was supposed to cause you to recognize your inability to live a perfect life and be acceptable to God. The Jews had misunderstood. They had, they had willfully misunderstood. They turned it into a manual thinking that they could actually achieve perfect observance of the law and thereby be acceptable to God. The law was meant to drive you to the conclusion, to the despair of saying, I can't do this which that puts you at the place where you cry out for mercy. That puts you at the place where God is now ready to use you. Jesus comes and he says, okay, let me, let me, let me reboot. Let me reset because you've been taught wrongly that the key to satisfying God is your external behavior. I want to show you that the point all along has been your acceptability to God is based on the perfection of your soul, of your heart, of the core of your being. And so the first point of this sermon... He's going to talk to us both in the negative and the positive. He's going to take examples of what they knew they were not supposed to do. And he was going to raise the bar to help them see that, that it was more than just those negative behaviors that they were to avoid. He was looking for a fundamental transformation in the kind of human beings they were. And then he's going to turn around and he's going to say, now let's look at the positive side, because see, the things that you aren't supposed to do, he said, I want you to to examine your heart motivation, not just your external behavior. But then he's going to come over here and say, now for the things that you are supposed to do, I also want you to examine your heart motivation, because it's not just your external behavior. What does a disciple look like? Well, here we are. We finished with uh, chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 16. So let's, uh, let's pick up there with verse 17. And, uh, the first part of this, I've called it the disciples' standard. And it begins by talking about how his disciples, authentic followers of Jesus, are meant to be people who, uh, who are, who exceed the law. All right. Look at, uh, look at verses 17 through 20. He says, do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever nullifies one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the point that he's going to take us on in this in this section of the sermon, one writer put it this way, while the law forbids the ends of sin, Christ forbids the beginnings as well. The law was a stepping stone. It was not the pinnacle of behavior. And so Christ's teaching here is not contrary to the law, but actually uh, just takes the, God's intention in a further direction. I, imagine a, a painter who begins his masterpiece by sketching what it is he wants to paint. And after the sketch is complete, then he goes back in and he fills in the color. That's what Jesus is doing. The Old Testament is the sketch, but now Jesus is here uh, to, to fill in the details. Now, in our generation, these verses are particularly relevant because for some reason in recent years, it has become a hot topic in evangelical circles to dismiss the Old Testament. Uh, we have several prominent megachurch pastors who are now teaching in their pulpits that the Old Testament has no relevance for us. We just leave it leave it aside. It it, no longer has any application for us. And yet here we find Jesus saying, speaking to that very issue, anybody who nullifies the Old Testament uh, will have to answer for it. Now there are some inadequate views towards the Old Testament. Some people believe that none of the Old Testament is relevant except those things that are explicitly repeated in the New Testament. By the same token, others say all of the Old Testament is relevant except anything specifically prohibited in the New Testament. What Jesus tells us is the Old Testament remains normative, but it's only understood as it's fulfilled in Jesus. The Old Testament provides the minimum requirements, but but those are examples, those are meant to be examples for the way to live, but even in the Old Testament, God's intention was for believers to always understand that a heart transformation is what's actually necessary to accomplish the goal of righteousness. For example, in the Old Testament, we say, well, we, don't, we no longer follow the dietary laws. Well, you're right. We don't follow the dietary laws. We eat bacon. Bacon. But despite the fact that we don't follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament, it's still a sin to put harmful items into your body. We don't, ha- we don't practice animal sacrifice any longer. And yet, we understand that sin is only atoned for by the shedding of blood. We just know that that's been accomplished by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We don't practice ritual washings like the Pharisees did. But the ritual washings were always just a symbol of something else, a clean heart. So while we don't practice ritual washing, we do understand that confession is made before we approach God. See, the Old Testament is, is, is the hint. It's the beginning. Jesus didn't set it aside. He completed it. He fulfilled it. Now, he's going to take us through, and this is where the Sermon on the Mount is often uh, dissected. We, we He's got six what we would call sermon illustrations. His basic approach starts with, um, I want you to exceed the law. The law is not the end of the story, it's the foundation, it's the beginning. I want you to do better than that. I want you to understand what the law was really designed for. And he's gonna give six illustrations. Now we break these out and preach them sometimes and, and, and they're all inspired, they're all true in and of themselves. But, but when you see the flow of thought, when you treat this as a single sermon, all of a sudden, these illustrations, I think, are very powerful. In fact, he's going to give us six illustrations here, and he's going to start with uh, two mentions of things that are listed in the Ten Commandments, and then he's going to broaden the Ten Commandments to speak about two things that come in our wider circle of personal relationships, and then he's going to broaden that circle still more and talk about the way we, we deal with the world in general. There are concentric circles here, and his illustrations all point to the same thing. There is a concern on the part of God for your heart to be right. When you raise children, it's one thing to control their behavior. Well, what's the goal of every good and godly parent? To see their heart won over. Because we understand that's the core of the problem. The Jews had figu- had, had, had determined that if they just ma- maintained a certain standard of behavior, they'd be okay. But that's never been the case. And so Jesus is going to give some examples to, sh- to illustrate this idea of, of how God evaluates a, an authentic follower. In verse 21, he's going to speak about murder. He says, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder. Now, that's straight out of, the, out of the, the Ten Commandments. And you've heard, whoever commits murder shall be answerable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be answerable to the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Come to good terms with your accuser quickly while you are with him on the way to court so that your accuser will not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will not be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last quadrants. Murder. Jesus is going to move beyond action into character. The Old Testament was satisfied when, when the commandment says, thou shalt not murder. The Old Testament essentially was satisfied if you didn't shed blood. I mean, you could say, I've never committed murder and people would say, "Oh, look at you. You're good you're good with God. You're right with God." And yet, what Jesus wants us to understand is not having committed murder, that's really the elementary level of righteousness. What he pushes us to is to understand that now he he wants us to understand that God doesn't simply look at the fact that you haven't committed murder. He looks at the fact that you have anger in your heart, which is the genesis of an idea that can potentially lead to murder. In other words, there's a progression here. Look at, look at what he says. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court. In other words, uh, it's, a, it's an offense that you can be charged with. But then he says, whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, you'll be answerable to the Supreme Court. Whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. You say, well, man. so if i call somebody a fool, I'm I'm going to hell. Understand the illustration. What Jesus is suggesting is that there are, uh, that there's a progression here. Character slander starts with uh, being angry with your brother and it progresses to calling him ugly names and it it goes all the way to the point where you refer to him by a word that they would have understood to have been uh, an incredible insult and and Jesus says well, here's here's the point he's trying to make not that calling your brother a fool uh will send you to hell his point is even if you don't murder your brother you're guilty enough to go to hell because there is a seed of something of hatred and anger in your heart and there's a progression that plays out. See, the next step, you call call him a fool, the next step that he doesn't pursue would be murder. His point is, if you want to avoid being guilty of murder, let's fight the fight of protecting the way our heart thinks about other people. You see, don't let that progression of sin unfold. Now, you're going to see this in, in the next one as well. The next one is adultery. Look at verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. This is the second illustration he draws from the Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, if your right eye is causing you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now here, he's making the same point. If you want to avoid the sin of adultery... The best way that you do it is you take drastic measures to avoid the lust which is the genesis of that. Listen, I've seen a a lot of people whose marriages were destroyed because of adultery. And when you ask them this question, I mean, I've asked this question dozens of times over the years and, and using different words, they all basically give the same answer. I say, Brother, what were you thinking? And they'll say, well, I don't know how it happened. I didn't set out to do this. Well, see, that's always the way of sin. Nobody gets up in the morning out of the clear blue sky and says, you know, feels like a good day for adultery. Nobody does that. There's a progression that happens and one day the the devil springs that trap of temptation and you step into it and then your life your life is forever changed and you go man i i didn't mean for that to happen i understand you didn't mean for it to happen but see the time to deal with it is not when you get to the temptation and you go oh i got to have self control i got to have self control i got to have self control the time to deal with it is when the genesis in your heart starts That's the point that Jesus is making. You see, in this business about adultery, he says you need to take drastic measures to avoid the thoughts and the situations which can put you in a scandal. Now, these verses are misunderstood because, uh, because people get bent out of shape where he says, uh, you know, you should pluck out your right eye or you should cut off your right hand. He's not literally suggesting that you should blind yourself, that you should eliminate body parts. But in, in, in that culture, when, you put, when if you could catalog all of the body parts, frankly, your hands and your eyes were understood in that culture to be your greatest assets. Your hands allow you to do all kinds of productive things and your eyes, your eyes are critical. In fact, people without hands and people without eyes are, are some of the neediest people in that culture because they're unable to, to provide for themselves. Jesus was simply saying it's worth taking drastic measures to fight the fight of sin at the beginning where, it gives, where it's given birth in your heart rather than wait to fight the fight over here. Uh, pornography is a perfect example. Pornography, the statistics are off the charts in our culture. I mean, not only, not only in culture at large, but, but if the statistics are true, they tell us that, 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 that church-going evangelical believers are struggling with pornography. Well, pastor, I, I, I just can't fix it. I just, I, it has too much of a hold on me. Yeah, because you're trying to fight the battle right here on the edge of temptation. Where's the battle to be fought? The battle is a battle of your heart. It's not a battle of your behavior. It's a battle of your heart. That's why Jesus says that the, the Jews would have been very proud to say, I've never committed adultery. Look at me, I'm a model citizen. Jesus says, yeah, but what about your heart? You ever let lust root around in there? You ever ponder things in your mind that you've never actually played out? Listen, from God's perspective, it's the heart that has to meet the standard. Well, he moves from the 10 commandments and he begins to, to widen the circle. Uh, look, look at the next one uh divorce he's gonna he's gonna and, and it's logical that he 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 the Jews used divorce in the first century basically to legitimize their lust. So Jesus just moves from this talk of lust into talk of divorce verse 31. He says, now it was said, whoever sends his wife away is to give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. These verses drive our culture crazy. But here's where our misunderstanding is. We treat these words like Jesus is just issuing Uh, A judicial opinion for some new law. What Jesus is saying here is he's refocusing the discussion because the Jews were obsessed with the exceptions. They knew that the Old Testament said that God hates divorce, but they were obsessed with all of the exceptions and they had developed an entire catalog of reasons why a man could divorce his wife. And each one of them was neatly categorized according to different act- actions so that when she did something that was displeasing, he could have a biblical justification to divorce her. It had become commonplace. And frankly, a lot of men in the first century, um, they would, do, in, in fact, this is how bizarre it, it became. Uh, for a time, you could actually get a one day divorce. Wow, wow, one day divorce, yeah. Divorce your wife because she burned the toast at breakfast. Go off, have your tryst, come back, marry your wife. It's not adultery, not technically because you weren't married. Do you see how absurd that is? They had, they had focused on the exceptions because everything about their righteousness was based on the technicalities of their external behavior. We do this when, you know, the, our language gives us away. We we'll say, well, well, are you lying to me? Well, technically, listen, when you have to use the word technically, you have just confessed to whatever you've been asked about. Well, what is the it depends on what the word is is. You see, we fit into the first century culture when we when we play games so that we can pretend like if we don't technically cross a line, then we're okay. I remember years ago being at at, at a youth camp and and answering questions from teenagers, and, and one of the questions was, how far can we go on a date before it's too far? Ooh. So let me understand. You want to know how, how deep into sin you can get before God actually takes notice. See, the question because Jesus is teaching about the heart. The question is not, how far can I go before I'm guilty of something? The question is, how far back can I stand so that's never an issue for me? We get our toes right here on the edge of temptation, and we go, I'm strong enough, I'm strong enough, I'm strong enough, I'm strong enough, until you're not. But see, if you deal with it at the heart level, We deal with it when the idea is presented to us, and we never get to the place where our toes are going to fall across the line. Divorce is allowed biblically for abuse, abandonment, and adultery. But because of all of the other improper reasons that they had developed, it led to what Jesus terms as the multiplication of adultery. A person with no cause for divorce has no biblical right to remarry. Now, we take these verses and we turn it into sermons about marriage and divorce. Understand this is a sermon illustration. It is true what Jesus said, but understand the purpose of what he's doing. It's not meant to be a discourse on, on marriage and divorce. He's simply showing them that one of the areas where you've been content, you have thought yourself acceptable to God because your external behavior technically conformed to the rules, you didn't cross the lines that you have established of what's okay and what's not okay. I'm telling you, the father is looking in your heart and he has decided that you're already guilty because you've, you've taken, you, you've, you've, you've allowed the Genesis of a sin to take root. He moves on to oaths in verse 33. Again, he says, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, take no oath at all, neither by heaven, for it is for it is the throne of God, nor by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you take an oath by your head, for you cannot make a single hair white or black, but make sure your statement is yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil origin. You see, the real question here is not the language by which we take an oath. There are people who say, well, I can't take an oath in in a courtroom. That's not what Jesus is suggesting. The question here is one of truthfulness and integrity. What he's alluding to was in the first century, like they did in everything else, the Jews had developed these arcane rules about what was binding and what was not binding. They would say, well, I swear by my mother, or I swear by the temple, or I swear by something else. And there was this hierarchy, and certain oaths were absolute. But other oaths, because the object that was being sworn by was of less value, those oaths you could fudge. So you had to listen very carefully. Because when somebody said, I swear by, you had to hear what it was they were swearing by because that told you just how much stock you could put in their word. They were, were they leaving themselves a loophole, a, a back door? Absolutely. And they had a whole system for this. And Jesus was saying, let's go back to your heart. It's about integrity. It's about trustworthiness. Here's the thing. If you, if your word can be trusted, if your yes means yes and your no means no, guess what? Your friends won't make you jump through the hoops to swear by this or that. He's telling us that it's a matter of the heart, not the intricacies of our external behavior. They were making these arcane rules as merely way, theological attempts to justify deception. Retaliation, verse 38. You've heard that it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not show opposition against an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other toward him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever forces you to go one mile... Go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, these verses again often misunderstood. There are some. Uh, there are some in in other branches of Christianity, uh, the Amish and the Mennonite, for example, who will take these verses and argue for uh, a sort of national passivism that that war is is never allowable. That we should never. Uh, be a part of the army. We should never participate in war. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about national pacifism or even any kind of national attitude toward uh, toward conflict. What he's talking about here is personal sacrifice in the face of abuse. You see, the Old Testament regulation was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, the reason that was given, you need to understand when God gave that rule It was to limit retaliation in the ancient world to what was acceptable. Let me explain. One of the great uh, problems throughout human history is that you hurt me, and I figure out how to hurt you worse. And then you have to figure out how to hurt me worse. And then I have to figure out how to hurt you worse than that. And human relationships in conflict typically escalate. In the Old Testament, when Jesus gave Israel a rule for personal conflict, he said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. What he was doing was he was giving them a rule that would make the penalty for wrong behavior, the penalty was equal to the wrong behavior it prevented the escalation of human conflict which eventually leads to to family feuds and ultimately to wars between nations. We hear this all the time and we think that this is a a bloodthirsty Old Testament God. Well, he said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. No, that was a limitation because what was happening in the ancient world was this normal human pattern of, of hurting you worse. And everything escalates back and forth, and, and God said, no. When something is when, when there's a wrong that's been done, the punishment has to be appropriate. This is played out, frankly, in, in, in all of Western civilization in our legal system because we have different categories. Um, not everything is a capital crime. You can't just be executed for anything. In fact, we have categories. We have felonies, and we have misdemeanors. Why? Because it's a recognition that not all crimes are of equal significance, of equal weight, therefore not all punishment needs to be, uh, punishment shouldn't be excessive, it should match the crime. This is an Old Testament principle uh, that that was meant to limit escalation. But Jesus is now saying, but an authentic disciple who follows me will find that He's going to live by a new standard, and that is a willingness to give up his dignity, a willingness to give up his security, his liberty, even his property, in order to, in order to reconcile with somebody that, that I'm at, at, at odds with. I used to tell, I used to tell my kids one of the principles that we tried to live by in our house. It's hard to raise kids if you if you have to always navigate um, who's right and who's wrong in every situation. Well, she said. Well, he did. Well, they did. Well, he did. Well, they're. We used to always say, "Listen, sometimes it's more important to be right with somebody than it is to be right." Sometimes, have you ever? This is a rhetorical question, so don't actually respond. Have you ever apologized to your spouse when you really didn't think you had done anything wrong? (laughs) Yeah, okay, okay, laughter sort of gives that away. But why why is that? Because if you say, no, no, I didn't do anything wrong, I'm going to assert my rights, that is a recipe for an unhappy marriage. Sometimes you just say, listen, sweetie, I'm sorry that it, it got to this. I don't want this to be between us. I apologize because I don't want anything to, to be between us. It's more important to be right with your spouse than it is to be right. What Jesus is suggesting here is when you're being taken to court and you're on your way, present yourself to the person who's suing you and see if you can make it right. The time for reconciliation is always before the time for a verdict to be issued. Why is this important? Because they were asserting their rights because it was all about external behavior. Jesus said, instead of worrying about retaliation, why don't you worry about being right with people? Let your heart be moved towards somebody. Here's the the reality, though. Only a person who has died to his own rights can display the character of Christ. If there was one human being in all of history who could say, I don't deserve to die, it was Jesus Christ. And yet he voluntarily gave himself up for us. The point here is if you want to follow me, have this attitude in you that I want to see people reconciled more than I want to assert my rights or my claims to what I what I deserve. Hatred and love, verse 43. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do they not do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles do. Uh, do they not do the same? When it comes to hatred and love, he says the test of a genuine faith is the way you treat people who normally would be your enemies. Now, now this is fascinating because he says, you've been told to love your love your friends and hate your enemies. You don't have to have any faith. There's no spiritual power required for that. I mean, that's that's natural to the human condition. We all love lovable people. You know, there's no challenge there to 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 the spirit. There's no uh, there's no extraordinary behavior there. I mean, uh, you know, everybody always uses Adolf Hitler for some reason. He's the he's the classic example of the worst person we can think of. But I'm sure there was somebody Adolf Hitler loved. (laughs) You know, it's no challenge to only love lovable people. Jesus says, if you want to be an authentic disciple, you display something that is out of the ordinary. Now, there's there's an ascending progression here as well. He starts by saying, I'm telling you, unlike what you've been told before, oh, let me just pause right here put a pin right there. One thing I haven't pointed out is that in each of these six sermon illustrations, there is a remarkable thing that, that I haven't mentioned. And that is, and they his audience would have noticed this absolutely. Each time he says, you've been told, but I say. Teaching in the first century, Jewish rabbis and scribes and teachers the typical method of teaching in the first century must have been dry as dust because it was simply uh, the assertion of a statement and then they would quote all of the authorities that that backed that up. So in a sense, teaching was was not engaging. It was not personally interesting. I think this is why the most, the average person in the first century really wasn't that interested. Because teaching was, this is what the text says, and this is what Rabbi so-and-so and Rabbi so-and-so and Rabbi so-and-so and Rabbi so-and-so and Rabbi so It would be like me reading a verse of scripture and then standing up here and simply reading all of the commentaries in my library. And and the goal would be for then for, then for you to sort of absorb all of that so that you are somehow by sheer weight of evidence and argument, you agree with the original statement. That was the way teaching was in the first century. Proposition A, support, 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 support. Believe Proposition A. Oh my stars, it must have been painful. Jesus says, here's what you've been told. He doesn't quote another rabbi. He doesn't quote from the Talmud. He doesn't he quote from, from any other sources. This is what you've been told. But here's what I say. They literally had never heard a teacher like this. Teaching from his own authority. Teaching from his own understanding. Of, of what God's intention was. This would have rocked them. But we get here and he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, and this is where he catches them completely off guard. He's going to give them this progression. I say, love your enemies. What? I, I'm sorry. I, 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 didn't, I didn't hear that. What did he say? Love your enemies. Nobody ever even thought to say that before. Not only love your enemies... But then he ratchets it up to another level. He says, pray for those who persecute you. Excuse me? Listen, I'm telling you, we just saw the life, we saw the death of Stephen on Sunday morning, this last Sunday. And I wonder if Stephen wasn't thinking about the Sermon on the Mount in those last moments. Love your enemies, Pray for those who persecute you. But then it doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, display your sonship your relationship to God. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may prove yourself to be sons of your father who's in heaven. Remember when I talked about uh, what it meant when he said in the Beatitudes that we would be called sons of God? He's not talking about being children, you know, biologically generated from God. He's saying that the the word sons implies a, a likeness, a resemblance. What do we always tell children? Well, you look just like your daddy. Well, we're talking about facial features or whatever, but in in Jewish culture, to say you look like your daddy was to say, I recognize him in you. I see the way he lived on display in you. Jesus is saying, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that, there's my favorite word in the New Testament, so that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your father who's in heaven. Love your enemies, pray for your persecutors, display your sunset sonship, exceed your fellow men. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do that. Even the Gentiles do that. I mean, this is an audience filled with people that would have hated tax collectors and Gentiles. He says, if, if if you're following these rules that you've always been told, love your friends and hate your enemies, you're not any different than the Jews and then the tax collectors and the Gentiles that you already hate. You're only living at their level. I'm calling you to live at a level that makes you extraordinary. Exceed your fellow men. Love your enemies, pray for your persecutors, display your sonship, exceed your fellow men, and then... Verse 48, be like your heavenly father. This is the pinnacle. This is where all these six six illustrations have been leading us to. He said, I want you to get past living at the technicalities of your external behavior. And I want you to understand that the battle is for a pure heart. Verse 48, therefore, you shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You see, the the first thing was to exceed the law. The second thing was to exceed the culture. But the highest level of this life that he's calling disciples to live by is the life that reflects the holiness of God. The purpose of salvation, the goal of the gospel, the yearning of God's heart is to produce a people that look like him. True sons of God in the sense that they display his nature. Perfect. Perfect. It means mature, whole, loving without limits. Now, we understand that sinless perfection is impossible in this life. But let me tell you, biblical godliness is attainable. But that godliness doesn't come in by a set of rules. It comes in by the presence of the Holy Spirit who transforms us at the heart level. The most dangerous thing you can say as a Christian is, I'm the best person I know. Always depends on who you stand next to. See, that's a faith based on external behavior. And if you live that way, you will find yourself justifying actions that you want to take and you'll tell yourself, well, technically it's not wrong because of A, B, C, and D. We have a remarkable capacity in our fallen selves to justify anything that we want to do. It is, it's fascinating what we can convince ourselves is okay. That's why the New Testament is pretty clear that we are to live in community and you're to get advice from godly brothers and sisters before you make big decisions. I've had people say, oh, listen, God is in this. Okay, tell me exactly what it is that, that you want to do. And they say it out loud, and I go, did you hear that? Yeah, it sounds different when I say it out loud. Because what happens is things in our minds, we convince ourselves that it's the right thing. Then we say them out loud and we go, oh yeah, that, that that's not that's not right. That's not who I am. Here he wants us to understand the emphasis is on transparent purity and unaffected holiness. It is an emphasis on imitating the Father's perfection. This sermon utterly rejects all religious hypocrisy, all spiritual sham, all showy righteousness, all religious duties that are performed for an audience. No one can match the holiness of God, but the question that we have to ask is, have some of us just quit trying altogether? I'm a pretty good Christian. Okay, is that your standard? Well, I'm as good as anyone else. Okay, is that your standard? You see, the standard that Jesus says is how do you compare to your heavenly father? We will have a better understanding of who we are and where we stand if we measure ourselves by the same standard God uses to measure us. Now, all of this part of the sermon is Jesus saying, I want to take you past the law, and I want to remind you that it's really a heart issue. So he's taking us through these six illustrations to say, these are things that you know you're not supposed to do, but you, you get around them by technicalities. I want you to take those six external behaviors, and I want you to backtrack them to the source in your heart, and that's where I want you to do battle. But he's going to now. This is this is point one, part B. He's going to say, "But let me tell you, it's not just the things that you aren't supposed to do. Let, let's talk about the things that you are supposed to do. Let's talk about uh, about the positives. Uh, go go back to chapter five, verse twenty. We we just read it at the start." Verse 20 of chapter five, he says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, they wouldn't have understood that when he first said it because nobody has a righteousness that that surpasses the Pharisees. I mean, they had the system down. They had memorized the rules. They knew all the scenarios. They knew where to apply the categories. They had the technicalities perfected. Nobody could, can surpass that righteousness. Only Jesus is going to take them on a journey to say, listen, the way you surpass their righteousness is you don't get caught up in the externals. You go to the heart of the matter. Well, here's six things you're not supposed to do, but I want you to take it back to the heart. Now let's look at three things that, that you are supposed to do, and we're going to see how those relate to the heart as well. The essence, the components, the cardinal values of Jewish piety in the first century first century would have been giving prayer and fasting so again with three illustrations to make his case Jesus is going to take those examples those positive behaviors and he's going to show how they need to be related to your heart in chapter one chapter six verse one He starts by saying, take care not to practice your righteousness in the sight of people to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets so that they will be praised by people. Truly, I say to you that they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your charitable giving will be in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He says in, a, in, in, in their society, um, well, he starts by saying, listen, I'm going to give you these positive things, but I, but I want you to understand, we're going to take this back to the heart. Again, don't they? The, the Pharisees would have said, don't do these things. Here's the line, don't do these external actions, these sins. But they would have also said, but do these other things instead. Jesus is going to say, don't do the heart issues that lead to those sins. But he's also going to say, when you have your your spiritual activities, when you have your disciplines of your faith, don't do those solely or primarily for personal honor or gain uh, to to accomplish some objective because if you if you do if you put your faith on display so that people will recognize that you're really a godly person he says god will grant no further reward the question for us is this do we believe god enough that we're willing to leave our rewards and our recognitions in his hands well look at this he starts with talking about giving in a society with no social security or welfare Charitable giving was a vital part of the individual piety of uh, of individual believers. But Jesus's point here is unambiguous. His followers must not parade their piety or show off their good deeds. That kind of ostentatious display nullifies any benefit that's due to the giver. Rather, he says, we are to give in such a way that others are never tempted to glorify the giver in place of God. In fact, he suggests a striking image of a man who's walking down a street and sees somebody who has a need. And he slips his hand into his pocket and he gives the man some money. But he does it so casually, it's as if the money being distributed with his right hand The left hand is completely unaware that it's even happening. Why? Because there is a trust there that God sees what we do and that he rewards that behavior a man who gives in a way that his left hand doesn't know what his right hand is doing is somebody who is leaving his reward in God's hand. Now, that doesn't imply, and it certainly doesn't require, that all benevolence is literally secret all of the time. It doesn't mean that that giving can't ever be done in a public way, but it does mean that giving can, should never be done in an ostentatious way. What Jesus is forbidding here is not publicity and performing good deeds, sometimes that's necessary and proper. Sometimes, <coughs> sometimes we put good deeds on display because it inspires other people to get on board and do that as well. But what he's talking about here is ostentatious publicity. That is doing things for the purpose of attracting attention and gaining applause. One of the great things Favorite things that I that I get to do in a church as a pastor, I love it. Is when people come and they say, um, "There's a need in the church. So and so has a situation, and uh, and I want to give some money, but I want to do it anonymously. So, so could I? I give it through the church? Absolutely. We'll 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 take that. We'll make a check, and 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 I'll go deliver it." I love to do that. Here, somebody wanted you to have this. Spirit of God moved in somebody's heart and they saw that you had a need and they wanted to meet it. Pastor, who was it? Yeah, I can't tell you. They just wanted to do it because they they wanted to honor God and they wanted to serve you. I love that situation because there are, sometimes there's tears, there's always joy. There's, there's the unexpected jubilation of a need met. But see, what happens in that situation? God always gets the credit because they don't know who to thank. Well, I, I, I'd love to thank them. Well, uh, they'd like you to just thank Jesus because he's the one that's behind their motivation. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying, do things so that, so that God receives the glory by our actions. Well, he's going to move from giving to prayer. Look at verse 5. He says, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they will be seen by people. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But as for you... When you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use thoughtless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. So do not be like them, for their for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You see, they were treating prayer the same way they were treating um, giving. You know, when they would go to the temple and give, uh, there was... <laughs> The, the Pharisees would, would go and they'd make, they'd make their offering and, and there was always a big to-do about it. I mean, they wanted everybody to see him give. It'd be like if, you know, if you pass the plates uh, and I saw this happen one time. You pass the plates and, and somebody I saw somebody get up and walk over and put their money in the plate instead of letting the plate pass by. They went, you know, why would they do that? I mean, the plate was coming to them, but see, nobody could see them if it just, they just put it in there when it passed by. They wanted to be seen dropping into the plate. That's what the Pharisees would do. That's why Jesus makes such a big deal about the widow's two mites when she goes to the temple and he says, listen, I've been watching people give into that offering container all morning long, but nobody's given more than her because she gave everything that she had, plus she gave it with nobody noticing. But Jesus noticed. See, that's the key here. The Father, he says, sees what we do in secret. A gift given to meet a need that's done anonymously. God takes makes record of that. Prayers, he says, go into a secret place and pray and pray in the secret place. Um, in, in, in the Pharisees would would make a big deal. These hypocrites, would they had certain times of the day when they would pray. And it was just the darndest thing. The Pharisees would always just happen to be in the marketplace when the time of prayer happened. But because they were so righteous, they couldn't slip off and go to prayer, they would just stop right there on a street corner. Now, you know, they've been doing this for years. If you know that you're going to pray at certain times during the day wouldn't you figure that at some point you'd figure out how to adjust your schedule so that you wouldn't be caught out in public when it's time to pray? But not them. They specifically wanted to be caught out in public. Pharisees typically prayed standing with their arms stretched out, looking into heaven, praying out loud. Well, you can imagine the spectacle that that made. Oh, look at that. It's prayer time. I completely forgot. Well, I guess I'll just have to pray right here in the market. Oh, Lord! What happens? Everybody in the market knows that there's a righteous Pharisee and he's praying because it's the time for prayer. Were they convicted that they weren't holy enough? No. They rolled their eyes because they knew exactly what was going on. He's showing off because he wants us to be impressed. Jesus says, listen... Any reward they get comes from what little recognition people give them because they're not getting any other reward for it. They're hypocrites who pray in conspicuous places specifically to put on a show. Instead, he says, you should pray with simplicity and directness and sincerity in talking to God. He says, uh, now, Christ, understand, he's not against long times of prayer, okay? Okay. Um, In Luke chapter 6, we know that Jesus, uh, in in coming to decisions about which disciples to to call to himself, it says Jesus prayed all through the night. He's not talking about, he's not against repeating requests. Because we know in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that he prayed the same thing a third time. That's not what he's suggesting here. He's not even against public prayer because he commended the publican, the tax collector, who stood in the back of the temple and prayed out loud, but with humility, pleading with God to forgive him because he was a sinner. Jesus is not against repetition. He's not against long prayers. He's not even against public prayers. What he's against is showing off in prayer. St. Augustine distinguished it this way. He said, there's a difference between much speaking in prayer and much praying. Well, the Lord's Prayer is the next section. And he's going to give them an example of the way that they're to pray. Uh, I really don't have time to go through all of that, but that's okay, because I'm probably going to come back and, and teach the Lord's Prayer as a part of the Praying Dangerous Prayer series on Sunday mornings. But let's just read it. He says, "'Pray then in this way, "'Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. "'Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. "'Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, "'as we also have forgiven our debtors. "'And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. "'For if you forgive other people for their offenses, "'your heavenly Father will also forgive you. "'But if you do not forgive other people, "'then your Father will not forgive your offenses.'" Quickly, just just look at it this way. Verse 9 is about intimacy and majesty. He is Father. That's a term of intimacy. But He's the Father who's in heaven. That's a term of majesty. Again, we have the paradox of the Christian life. This is a, a majestic daddy. Verse 10 tells us the recognition of God's agenda. He says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 11, a request for our daily needs. We're instructed to pray for our daily needs because the Bible doesn't tell us that God makes long-term future guarantees for our, our supply. He expects us to come to Him on a daily basis. My grandmother, from a very different generation, she went to the, went to the market every single day my mom, I remember when I was a kid, my mom would say, you know, these green beans, they're, you know, they're, you should buy enough for two meals, they're, they're, they're on sale. No, I don't need enough for two meals, I need enough for today's meal. She went to the market every single day and she fixed the food that she had for that day. That was just her, her habit, I guess, but in a very real sense, The fact that we all have freezers full of frozen goods and pantries full of other things sometimes makes us forget that we're supposed to ask God every single day to meet our needs. We've created a security blanket, a safety net that is so comfortable that we forget how to pray for God to provide for us. Verse 12 is a restoration of fellowship. This is where he prays about forgiveness. It's interesting. He says we get to choose the standard by which God evaluates us. If you forgive other people for their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people, then your Father will not forgive your offenses. He also talks about spiritual warfare here. Verse 13, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'll speak to this prayer probably more um, at a later time, But, but just imagine this. I find it fascinating, first of all, that the Lord's Prayer <laughs> is so often quoted as almost a good luck mantra, where we don't even really think about the words. We just, you know, we have we have whole branches of Christianity that that have treated the the, the Lord's Prayer like it's um, like the frequent repetition of the Lord's Prayer is magical. We've turned these pray these these. This prayer into um, into a, a, a talisman for God to just jump through hoops for us. We've made it exactly what He said don't do. Don't let your prayers be rote, routine, mechanical. Sit down and talk to God like a person. But imagine this as you pray. One of these days, we'll be in heaven. And I can imagine this prayer, a prayer that where all of these petitions have been satisfied, a place where God's name is absolutely sanctified or hallowed. His reign has come completely. His will did come to pass. He has forgiven us our sins. He has put an end to temptation. He has delivered us from Satan permanently. Well, real quickly... He finishes with fasting. Verse 16, "'Now whenever you fast, "'do not make a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, "'for they distort their faces "'so that they will be noticed by people "'when they are fasting. "'Truly I say to you, "'they have their reward in full. "'But as for you, when you fast, "'anoint your head and wash your face "'so that your fasting will not be noticed by people, "'but by your Father who is in secret, "'and your Father who sees what is done in secret "'will reward you.'" Just like giving in prayer, the Pharisees had turned fasting into a public display. Everybody knew that the Pharisees, as a rule, fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. Now listen, nobody, nobody is gonna starve to death by going one day without food, one or two days a week. But the Pharisees, they had turned this into performance art. I mean, they would go out on Mondays and Thursdays and they, you know, you get up, you don't take a shower, you don't comb your hair, you put on old clothes and you go out and you just look like, oh, what's wrong with you? Oh, I'm fasting today. I mean, they had turned it into an art form of just agony. Like fasting is this uh, physically desperate act and, and I can just barely make it through the day. They loved to put on a show. They had obvious suffering as they went through their day, suffering and deprivation. Jesus says, conceal your devotion and let God be responsible for your rewards. God judges the greatness of his servants by searching our hearts, not by inventory, inventorying our actions. He examines our inner attitudes. He sees sees the deeds that we do in secret. Sometimes we're tempted to think, nobody appreciates me. I never receive any recognition. I work hard and nobody at that church gives me a pat on the back. Let me tell you something. The more you do, that is unseen by the people around you, I promise you there is a reward for everything. Nothing you do in the name of Jesus Christ will go unacknowledged in eternity. And it comes down to this. Do you want somebody to pat you on the back and say, man, you are really something. Or do you want Jesus to say, well done. You are a good and faithful servant. Welcome to your rest. You see, the key to living a godly life is that those external behaviors, instead of ginning up the self-discipline to not commit murder and adultery, he says, fight the fight of your heart with the Holy Spirit that is in you. Learn how to be pure here. If you're pure here, you never get here. But the righteous things that you do, the disciplines of your faith, don't show off because there's no benefit that way. Serve Jesus discreetly. And he will recognize you publicly. What does a disciple, an authentic follower of Jesus, look like? He's pure in heart and he's humble in spirit. Point number one. Father, thank you for this message, this section of, of God's word that you've preserved for us, this sermon that that Matthew was so diligent to record for us. I pray that you would help us, that you would teach us, that as we ponder this, uh, your Spirit would continue to teach us. And as we unfold the remaining parts of this sermon in, in the next couple of days, Father, just, um, just let us see the picture of who it is you want us to be, and let us, let us have a deep and abiding desire to be exactly that kind of person a sincere, devoted, authentic follower of Jesus Christ. Father, find that among a people called Evergreen. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.